Okay, so take a few moments to settle down your mind, relax your body, put aside thoughts of what you've been doing today and any other thoughts that aren't related to what we're doing here in this class. And take a few more moments to recall your positive, altruistic motivation that you generated at the beginning of the day today, wanting to do everything for the benefit of all living beings, in particular, wanting to become enlightened yourself to be able to help all living beings. So whatever way you want to generate that thought, Bring that back into your mind as your reason, your motivation for being here, participating in this class. And I thought we could start tonight by doing a meditation on impermanence, the impermanence of our own I, self, me. So we probably have a sense of being permanent. For example, if we look at old photos of ourself when we were a child, we may feel that's me when I was five years old or 10 years old. As if the I of right now is the same person as that five-year-old child. As if I'm the same person all through my life. Just see if that is a feeling that you have about yourself.
we do say things like when I was five or when I was 10 or when I was 16 or when I was 22 and so on, talking about past times in our life, the feeling of I, the I of today right now is the same as the I of those past times. Of course, when we really think about it, we realize that we have changed. Our body has changed, our mind has changed, lots of changes have taken place. But there still may be this sense of an I that has continued all this time, an unchanging, permanent I. And it's similar when we think about the future. If we have plans for what we're going to do in the future, like when we're young, we usually have a lot of plans, things we want to do, like having a career, getting married, having a family, going traveling, having our own money and home and car and so forth. But even now, we may have plans for the future. And when we have these ideas about the future, again, we may have a sense that the I of right now will be the same person who will have those experiences in the future. So we know that in Buddhism, it said that our body, our mind, our eye, and all the things in the world around us are impermanent, not permanent. They're constantly changing. So we know that intellectually, but when it comes to our sort of gut level feeling about ourself, it may be a different story. So it's helpful to recognize that, that there is this kind of sense of a, a permanent fixed I that exists in the past and the present and the future. And then familiarize ourselves more with the meaning of impermanence. Our body and our mind are impermanent, not permanent. So with our mind, there is a mental continuum, a kind of stream of mind moments arising and passing, but a continuous stream that goes through time. And 
it carries all the seeds or the imprints of our experiences and our emotions, negative ones, positive ones, our actions, our karma. So there is a mental continuum continuing through time, but it's not something permanent, impermanent, changing all the time. So that can't be a permanent I. And there's also a continuum of our body, a body made of many, many different parts down to tiny particles material particles like molecules and atoms and subatomic particles. And these are also changing every moment. They don't stay the same from one moment to the next. So our body too is impermanent, changing all the time. But there's still a continuum of our body. Even though our body is changing all the time, it continues to be a human body. It doesn't turn into something else like a tiger or a horse. So the changes are very, very subtle, invisible. We can't see them. We can't directly experience them. Although we can recognize grosser changes over time, like wrinkles in our skin and our hair changing color, becoming gray or white. And those changes take place because of the subtle changes happening every moment, every nanosecond. So our body and all the parts of our body cannot be a permanent I. We can't point to our body or anything in our body and say that's a permanent I, a permanent me. So if we do have a sense of a permanent I, what is it? Is there something we can point to within our experience and say that is a permanent I, an unchanging I existing all through my life?
So I once asked a question about this to Cancer Jumba Take Joke because I could see that I did have this sense of a permanent I, like, you know, I was this and I will be that. And so I, I thought, so does that mean that I have this conception of a permanent unitary independent I, like we looked at earlier? that the non-Buddhists uh, believe in, but the Buddhists refute. Um, so I wondered if we have a sense of a permanent I, does that mean we have that sense of an I? And he said, no. Um, he said, just seeing yourself as, as permanent isn't that view of the non-Buddhists. Um, that has to have all three parts. You know, it's not just permanent, but it's permanent and unitary and independent. Okay, so it's a uh, you know a three a threefold misconception, <laughs> not just permanent. Um, yeah. So and and seeing oneself as permanent and seeing other things as permanent is probably just that first type of mistaken conception, you know, the four mistaken conceptions that are um, related to the Four Noble Truths, mm -hmm. like the, uh, each Noble Truth has one, has four aspects that are, uh, that counteract four mistaken conceptions. Mm -hmm. So with the first Noble Truth, true Dukkha, um, there are four misconceptions, uh, seeing impermanent things as permanent, seeing um, unsatisfactory things as pleasurable and so on. So that first one of seeing impermanent things as permanent, we probably all have that misconception. It's kind of innate, inborn misconception of, of seeing things as permanent. And that's why we have to meditate on impermanence. <laughs> if, we already, if we already understood impermanence, then we wouldn't need to meditate on that and realize that. So we probably are under the influence of that misconception or that type of ignorance that does see things as permanent. And so that would apply to ourselves as well. So my understanding is that, yeah, it's just a sort of natural or innate misconception that we have um, and something we need to overcome. So meditating on impermanence is very, very helpful, very important. And um, um, yeah, also um, I want to share something in the booklet by Geshima Kelsang Wangmo, her little book. Oh, well, it's a file, a PDF file, but yeah, she kind of made this booklet about the tenets. And in one point, she explains what it means to be impermanent or momentary. So she says, to be momentary does not mean to merely exist for one moment, but to change moment by moment. It also doesn't mean that it changes every moment into something completely different, since momentary change mainly refers to very subtle change that may not be obvious to us. For instance, even though the molecules that constitute a table change from moment to moment, which is why we have to say that the table is momentary, the table does not cease to be a table from one moment to the next. 
In fact, its changes are so subtle that we are not directly aware of them. So, yeah, sometimes when they talk about impermanence, they use the word like ceasing, you know, like it ceases every moment, it disintegrates every moment. It almost sounds like it goes out of existence every moment, but it's not quite like that. My understanding is, and that seems to be what she's saying here, is that um, like whatever is existing in one moment, um, in a way it ceases, but it changes into the next moment. It doesn't totally cease, doesn't totally go out of existence altogether, but it goes through a process of transformation and um, gives rise to the to the next moment. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, yeah, subtle impermanence is um, quite profound. <laughs> quite um, interesting to think about and and it, it's it's an important part of this uh, next school that we're going to be moving on to now. So um, I just thought to, it would be helpful to start today with a little bit of meditation on impermanence. Okay, so we finished the first school by Bashika school. And now the second school is called Sotrantika, which translates as uh, Sutra. And sutra school. Um, so the definition of this, um, yeah, I notice that when they give the definitions, they, they, they give it in terms of a person. And so to me, that means that when we talk about the sutra school, it's not like a building <laughs> you know, or a set of books or a set of ideas, but rather it's people. Yeah. Each of these schools is actually people who have studied the tenets of that particular school and understood them and accepted them and then, you know, they propound them. They they teach them to others and they assert the tenets. So it's people who 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 make up a school. These four schools so the definition of a Sotrantika person is a person who propounds Hinayana tenets and accepts both self-cognizers and external objects. So saying that they propound Hinayana tenets distinguishes them from those who follow the Mahayana schools. And then saying that they accept um, self-cognizers, yeah, that distinguishes them from the Vaibhashika because Vaibhashika don't accept self-cognizers. Okay, so we've separated them from the Mahayanas and we've separated them from the Vaibhashikas. And it seems that saying they accept external objects is kind of redundant here, maybe not really necessary, <laughs> but anyway, it doesn't hurt. Um, and that distinguishes them from the Chittamatra, the mind-only school, who refute external objects. So this is, you know, um, refining the understanding of who a Sotrantege is by their main views. And actually, in the book, um, this book, uh, Cutting Through Appearances, which has um, commentary by Geshe Zopa, he said that in fact, one subschool of the Sotrantika, the first one, which we're going to get to, 
Subtrantica is following scripture. They're similar to the Vibhashikas. They have similar tenets to the Vibhashikas. And um, so, in fact, that subschool do not accept self-cognizers. So, so this definition doesn't quite fit that first type of Sutrantika. But mainly, the main type of Sutrantika is the second one, the ones following reasoning. So usually when they talk about Sutrantika and Sutrantika tenets, they're talking about the second one. Yeah, so the two divisions or subschools are uh, Sutrantikas that follow scripture and they mainly follow Vasubandhu's treasury of manifest knowledge, the Abhidharma Kosha. And that text is all about the Vaibhashika school, <laughs> Vaibhashika tenets. So it seems that they have a lot of a lot of similarities with the Vaibhashikas, but not everything. They don't agree with the Vaibhashikas about everything. Uh, one example is the Vaibhashikas say that there are arhats who can regress, who can fall from the state of arhat. Um, but th these Sotrantikas don't agree with that. They say no. So that just, that's one difference between them and the Vaibhashikas. But the second type of Sotrantikas are, are those that follow reasoning. And they mainly follow uh, Dharmakirti's seven treatises on valid cognition. So we studied um, one of Dharmakirti's texts called the Pramanavartika, or the um, yeah, commentary on valid cognition. But he wrote other texts as well. Um, and so there are people who follow those texts, those treatises, and um, they mainly use reasoning. They use reasoning rather than just scripture. So they, as we can see with Dharmakirti's Pramanavartika, you know, um, uh, using logic and reasoning, reasoning to accept things like past and future lives and the possibility of omniscience and so on. And um, yeah, so this is the main type of Sotrantika. And in Meditation on Emptiness, Jeffrey says um, that this sub second subschool are considered higher than the former because their assertions on the processes of reasoning are more developed and they are closer to the Chitta Matra school. So it's not that the first type of Sotrantikas don't use reasoning, they do, but not to the extent that the second does. They use it much more. So you might remember when we studied the Pramanavartika uh, with Geshe Yeshitapke, it was said that um, he himself was a Chitamatra. He, he, his, his own school was Chitamatra. But in that text, he was writing from both points of view. So it was a kind of combination of Sotrantika and Chitamatra. So then the etymology, the term Sotrantika, um, they're called Sotrantikas because they propound tenets following the Buddha's sutras. And I mean, that, that applies to all the <laughs> schools. <laughs> they, all, they all follow the Buddha's sutras. But it seems that um, because this 
Yeah, I don't know the story. I was trying to find um, more about the history of this school, but one thing I read was that they kind of separated themselves off from those who followed the, like the Mahavibhasha, that text that the Vibhashikas follow, which is all about Abhidharma. And they believe this is the word of the Buddha, but other people did not. And so they kind of distanced themselves from those who were relying on that text and wanted to rely on the genuine words of the Buddha and not, not these other texts. So that seems to be the origin of that name. Um, and it says another name for them is exemplifier. Doesn't seem to be so well known, but they, that they're called exemplifiers because they explain phenomena by way of examples. So that's just a little bit of an introduction to this school. And this school is actually quite important because, um, you know, in the Tibetan monasteries, they study a lot of texts that are uh, according to this school, like Lorig and the debate texts and collected topics and so on. And it seems that um, many of their explanations of things like about the mind and about valid cognition and so on are um, the basis for the reasoning used to understand emptiness and um, so the Madhyamika schools accept a lot of what they explain and rely on their explanations in the process of developing an understanding of emptiness they don't ex they don't agree with everything but a lot of a lot of their assertions they agree with okay so the first or the next point number four is um, the mode of asserting objects so what do they say about objects so the first thing is a definition of an existent something that exists um, is that which is observed by a valid cognizer um, and so, yeah, this definition, you've probably encountered it before, like in the debate text. And um, yeah, so it's used a lot in the monasteries when they're debating. How do we know if something exists or not is if there is a valid cognizer. We'll get to that later. What is a valid cognizer? <laughs> but anyway, as long as there's at least one valid cognizer that observes that object, knows that object, then that means it exists. It doesn't mean everybody has to know it, but at least one. So, for example, Geshe Jama uh, Tekchok said, you know, emptiness is an existent because it is observed by a valid cognizer. It's not necessary that everyone realizes it, but there are some who do, like the Aryas, the Arya... Uh, the Arya beings, they have valid cognizers observing emptiness, and so then it does exist. So even if we can't see it, it doesn't prove it's not existent. And this text doesn't mention synonyms of existent, but do you remember some of them? What are some of the synonyms of existent? Object of knowledge? Yeah, object of knowledge is one. Functional being. <laughs> Are you a Vibhashika? <laughs> That's what Vibhashikas say. 
but not not the other school. So this school doesn't agree that um, functioning being is synonymous with existence. That that comes later. That's yeah. So so we have existent object of knowledge. Any others? Object of knowledge is of an omniscient consciousness. Yeah, that's one. <laughs> Just object. Object. Object all by itself. And let's see what else. Established base. Established base. That's not a very common one. Phenomenon. Did somebody say phenomenon? Yeah, phenomenon. Sure, in Tibetan. Sure. And then another one is measured object. Shelja. So there's a number of, of synonyms of existent and um yeah and then then they go on to divide existence in different ways so one way is into the two truths this is always very important what do they say about ultimate truths and conventional truths so ultimate truths they start with ultimate truths. so ultimate truths are Phenomena that can perform a function ultimately. Phenomena that can perform a function ultimately. So when it talks about um, performing a function, the main function is producing results. Okay, not baking bread or, I mean, that's a result too, but just any kind of result. <laughs> As long as something produces a result, then it performs a function. It's a functioning thing. Um, so anything that can perform a function, especially the function of producing result, is an ultimate truth, according to this school. And so synonyms of ultimate truths are impermanent phenomena. So all impermanent phenomena according to this school, are ultimate truths. It's quite different than the Madhyamika school. <laughs> um, yeah, so, um, let me see, I got some notes here. Yeah, so again, talking about things that perform a function, the main function is bringing results. And the result can simply mean the next moment of the continuum of that phenomenon. So the one moment of the table is able to produce the next moment of the table. One moment of mind produces the next moment of mind. So that's why all impermanent phenomena, they're changing all the time. And in the process of changing, they're producing the next moment of that continuum. So, uh, in the Vabashaka school, they said that um, ultimate truths were the um, like particles, tiny particles of of material things. It's tiny, partless particles. So the the particles making up the table are ultimate truths, but the table itself is a conventional truth. Because it's, um, yeah, it's, when you when you take it apart, physically or mentally, it, you can't see a table anymore. So it's only conventionally existing rather than ultimately existing. 
But this school would say that the table itself is an ultimate truth because it can for perform a function, but also all the parts of the table down to the tiniest particles. They do say there are partless particles that can't be broken down anymore. <laughs> so from the tiniest particles up to the big whole table, all of those things are ultimate truths. They all have, they're all impermanent and they all have the ability to perform a function. And in another book, I can't remember which one now, um, the uh, etymology of ultimate truth, the t Tibetan and Sanskrit terms for ultimate truth, um, if you break that down, it means truth for an ultimate mind, truth for an ultimate mind. And according to Sutrantika, an ultimate mind is um, a consciousness that is not mistaken to its appearing object. Well, to make it simple, it's a valid direct perceiver. <laughs> um, valid direct perceivers are ultimate minds um, because they are not mistaken to what appears to them. As opposed to conceptual minds, we'll get into this later when we look at the different types of minds, but a conceptual mind, like a thought, when we think about something, what is appearing to thought is, is an image, a conceptual appearance, uh, which is actually permanent. It's something permanent, not impermanent. So conceptual minds are not as valid and not as, not that they're invalid, but they're not as perfect, not as ideal as direct perceivers. So direct perceivers, direct perception is the best type of mind to have. And, um, so what is true for that type of mind is an ultimate truth. So what is true for a direct perceiver is our impermanent phenomena. Direct perceivers are able to see impermanent phenomena directly, nakedly. So, so what are some examples of ultimate truths according to this school? A person. A person, a yeah, human being, body, hmm? a computer, a, computer. <laughs> a car, huh? Yeah, Abby, yeah, yeah. So all material things, all minds, mm -hmm. consciousnesses, and also the other type of impermanent phenomena, abstract composites. Mm -hmm. Even they, like persons and time and so forth. So they would all be ultimate truths. And then the synonyms for ultimate truths are impermanent phenomena, those things that change moment by moment, functioning thing, things that perform functions, uh, product, something produced by causes and conditions, uh, compounded phenomena, also something that comes into existence from causes and conditions. And then truly established. Um, so Geshe Jamachekshuk said, what that means is that they exist truly for a non-mistaken consciousness. Yeah, so it's, it's just another synonym. So yeah, so according to this school, all ultimate truths would be truly established or truly existent.
a substance, he said, in this context, it just means a functioning substance, substantially existing somehow. And then the last term is specifically characterized phenomena. Um, so that, that term means that which exists by its own specific character and is not a mere conceptual imputation. So these are all just different terms for impermanent things and ultimate truths. And they all have slightly different meanings, but they're all mutually inclusive with each other. So you don't need to learn all these terms. <laughs> um, the, probably the most important term is impermanent, impermanent uh, phenomena and ultimate truths. Um, so those are synonymous. So then conventional truths are phenomena that cannot perform a function ultimately. And so this includes all permanent things. So all permanent phenomena are conventional truths. They're not able to bring results, can't perform any function. And the term conventional truth literally means truth for an obscured mind or a deceptive mind. And according to Satrantika, that type of mind is a conceptual mind. So concepts or thoughts, conceptions are obscured minds. And they are obscured because they can't perceive things directly. They're unable to have direct perception of things. They always, whenever we have a conceptual mind, we think about something, um, our mind is not directly perceiving the object, but rather it's perceiving the object via a mental image, conceptual appearance. And so that kind of mind is considered an obscured mind or a deceptive mind. Um, so examples of conventional truths would be uh, non-compounded space, non-compounded space, also true cessations, um, the absence of afflictions in the mind, such that they will never arise again, and also emptiness or selflessness. So these are conventional truths. So. So this becomes interesting then when we um, talk about an aria. An aria is someone who has a direct re realization of selflessness. So how can an aria have a direct realization of selflessness if selflessness is a conventional truth that cannot be perceived uh, directly? Anyone remember that explanation of how it works? With what they're perceiving, the aggregates, mm -hmm. right? But it's an implicit realization. Yeah. 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 So in the mind in Tibetan Buddhism, um, it explains it like this. Yeah, a permanent phenomenon such as the selflessness of the person cannot appear to a direct perceiver, such as the wisdom of meditative equipoise and Arya's, you know, wisdom directly realizing emptiness. So selflessness can't directly appear to that mind, but it, but still the mind can know 
selflessness. So the way they explain it is that that mind, that wisdom, explicitly knows the aggregates, like aggregates of body and mind, which are devoid of a self of persons, and through the force of that knowledge, implicitly knows the selflessness of the person. So an Arya, according to this school, they're meditating on the emptiness of their self. That mind um, sees the aggregates, the body and mind, and knows that they are uh, empty of a self, a self-sufficient, substantially existent self. So it knows that implicitly, by the way. This is kind of a difficult you have to study how they explain the mind and the different ways the mind knows things and so on. If they don't so the selflessness of phenomena, then how does knowing the selflessness of the aggregates lead them to a selflessness of the person? Um, well, yeah, so this school doesn't explain a selflessness of phenomena. It only explains selflessness of persons. But they do say, I, I don't know if, yeah, they do say that the selflessness of persons can also apply to phenomena. Mm -hmm. So the selflessness of persons, like the, the subtle selflessness of persons, is the absence of a self-sufficient, substantially existent self, that kind of self that's like the boss or the controller. So, um, so you realize the absence of that kind of self and then that can apply to phenomena in the sense that, um, like our, the body, the body is not an object of use of a self-sufficient, substantially existent person. And our belongings, you know, these are not objects of use by a self-sufficient, substantially existent person. So there is that way of applying selflessness of persons to phenomena, but it's not the same as selflessness of phenomena as in the Mahayana schools. So I don't know if that would apply here to the aggregates. I would think so. Because there's also, you know, part of this sense of self is not just I, but also mine. You know, so we tend to have this attitude of mine with regard to our body and our mind. They are mine. And so if you, you know, realize the non-existence of that false kind of I, and my, as in the owner of the body and mind, then that would affect your attitude towards your aggregates, your body and mind. Okay, so then some synonyms of conventional truths, just at the bottom. <laughs> um, falsely established, so that's like the opposite of truly established. And falsely established means they don't exist the way they appear to conception. So uh, I didn't find an explanation of that, but maybe what it means is they say that when we have a conception of an object, um, we don't actually see the object itself, but rather an image. There's an image of the object, and that conceptual mind is unable to know to distinguish the image of the object from the actual object. Like our mother, for example, um, yesterday was Mother's Day, so maybe we were thinking of our mothers. I'm 
Mother's Day. So when we think of our mother, she may be far away or she may have already gone to the next life, but we can still think of our mother and there's some kind of image of our mother in our mind. And it's said that the mind thinking of mother is unable to realize that that image of mother is just an image and not our actual mother. I used to have trouble with that. Uh, I used to think, how can that be? I know that's just an image of my mother. My mother's not alive anymore. But I think the point is that conception um, does somehow believe that that image is one's own mother because you can get emotional about it. Yeah, you can have emotional reactions to that image as if she's right there in front of you. So I think that's, for me, that's what they are talking about, that, you know, it takes the image to be the actual thing, even though it's not. So there is some mistake there. Does that make sense? There's always a mistaken element to conceptions, because what appears to conception seems to be the real object, even though it's not. That's why conceptual minds are deceptive or obscured minds. And then permanent phenomena. Um, so conventional truths are always permanent phenomena. They don't change moment by moment. And then the last term is generally characterized phenomena. Um, the meaning of that is they exist as mere imputations by conception. They're just imputed and not produced by causes and conditions. Okay, so I think mainly if you can remember that according to this school, all impermanent phenomena are ultimate truths and all permanent phenomena are conventional truths. That's their view. <laughs> they must have reasons for saying that. Okay, so then there's another way of dividing objects into negative and affirmative. Affirmative is also sometimes translated as positive. So whatever exists is either one of these two. It's either a negative or an affirmative. And this way of dividing things is in terms of how our mind, particularly conceptual mind, how our mind knows an object. Whether in order to know that object, there needs to be some kind of negation, you know, a negating, uh, an object of negation. So for example, um, selflessness or emptiness, in order to know emptiness, in order to realize emptiness, something has to be negated. So we've heard that thousands of times, so we're probably familiar with that. <laughs> something has to be negated, and then you can know emptiness, then you can realize emptiness. So, um, so that's an example of a negative phenomena. Whereas affirmative phenomena, there's no need to negate anything in order to know it. So first it starts with negative phenomena. A negative phenomenon is realized by means of the mind apprehending it, eliminating its object of negation. Okay, so a negative phenomenon is an actual thing, an, an object. And when the mind knows that object, it first has to negate something. 
something has to be negated, some object of negation has to be negated, and then the mind will know that object. And there are two types. One is non-affirming negatives. And so um, this is when an, there's, there's a negation of some object of negation and nothing is affirmed in its place. Um, so examples are non-compounded space. So when our mind knows non-compounded space, it's by way of just negating obstruction. You know, it's said to be just the mere absence of obstruction. So obstruction, obstructibility is negated and nothing is affirmed, nothing is put in its place. So it's just a mere negation without affirming anything. And then true cessations um, is the negation of at least a portion of the afflictions, the mental afflictions, and nothing is put in their place. Nothing is affirmed or put in their place. It's just an absence of those afflictions. And then emptiness, um, is just the mere negation or mere absence of some object of negation, like a self-supporting, substantially existent person. So that is negated, and nothing is put in its place, affirmed in its place. So this probably gets, you can understand it better if we look at the other type of negative, the affirming negatives. <laughs> so affirming negatives um, is when there's an object negated, something is negated, but something is um, put in its place, affirmed in its place. Although the examples are <coughs> not so easy to understand, but anyway, let's try. So uh, the first example is opposite of not being a cup. Um, so, um, so what this means is that Everything that's not a cup is eliminated. Okay, so you, the mind goes through some process of eliminating everything that isn't a cup, and what's left after that is a cup. And this can sound kind of strange, but it said that um, when our mind, when we have a conceptual mind, when we think of an object. This is what happens in our mind. Our mind goes through this process of eliminating everything that isn't that object, and then what's left is just that object. So for example, our mother. When we think of mother, my mother, um, our mind eliminates everything that's not my mother, and then what's left is an image of my mother. It's kind of hard to believe that the mind really does that, but this is what they say. Do you find that hard to, yeah? Huh? Yeah, I mean, just immediately. <laughs> and how do they know that the mind does this? <laughs> Who's they? Well, it's Satrantika, but all the other schools as well. Um, the uh, Yeah, I'll read what, this is from Jeffrey's book, Meditation on Emptiness, what he says about this. Um, 
And for the Sutrantikas following reasoning and for the Mahayana schools of tenets, the process of naming and noticing is negative or exclusionary. He uses the example of an ox. I guess that's what they use in the Tibetan ox. <laughs> ox appears as an exclusion of non-ox to a consciousness that thinks ox. In other words, the process of naming relies on the elimination of non-ox. Without the appearance to the mind of something as the negative of non-ox, thought cannot identify ox. Non-non-ox does indeed mean ox, but it must appear to the mind through the negative root of eliminating non-ox. <laughs> and yeah, it's this, this school says that, but also the, the higher schools, Mahayana schools as well. So this is what every time we think, every time we have thoughts, memories, conceptions, this is what our mind is doing. It's eliminating all the things that aren't that particular object. And that's what's left. It's just, and, and, and again, it's just an appearance, like an, an image of that object. We, we, when we think of mother, it's just an image of mother rather than our actual mother, obviously. But still, that conceptual mind does relate to that image as if it's really our mother. Is that originally or earliest coming from Dignaga or Dhammakirti or do you I don't know. I don't know who came up with that. <laughs> um, yeah. And and then this this image that's appearing to conceptual mind is also a permanent phenomenon, not not an impermanent phenomenon. It's, uh, it doesn't change. And that causes a lot of um, um, mental agitation, <laughs> I think, for us as well. Because we think, yeah, but my image of an object can change. You know, um, at one point in time, I think of the object in that way. At another point in time, I think of it in that way. So that is true. However, each time we have a conception of that object, that image itself doesn't change. That's the way I think of it. Um, let me try to think of an example. Okay, so like a person that I knew back when I was in my 20s. Um, and, and at that point in time, I spent time with that person. So I had a mental image of that person appearing in a certain way. And then I didn't see that person for many years. And then later I met that person and I, I didn't even recognize her because her hair had turned completely white. And you know, I was like, oh, you know, she had a completely different appearance than what I, how I remembered her many years earlier. And so now, you know, after meeting her again, having this new image, now I have a different image of her than I did when I was in my 20s. So that can change. But... Um, so over time, we can have different images, different mental images of the same person or the same object. But in the moment when we are thinking of that person or that object, um, and that image is appearing to our mind, that image 
is not an impermanent phenomenon. It doesn't change. Does that make sense? I mean, that's how I figured it out for me. It's not a physical thing. You know, this mental image, it's not an impermanent phenomena. It's not form. It's not mind. It's not an, even an abstract composite. So it's just, I don't know, it's, an imp it's a permanent phenomena. <laughs> and it doesn't go through changes while it's there in the mind. That's how I think of it. Um, yeah, so anyway, that's the meaning of that first example opposite of not being a cup. So it's another way of saying that is non-non-cup. <laughs> a non-non-cup is cup, but it's the way cup is understood by conceptual mind. So the second example might be a little easier. Um, if somebody says, fat Bob doesn't eat during the day. So this statement is negating something. It's, what is it negating? Eating during the day. But it's affirming something. So what is being affirmed? That he eats at night. He eats at night, yeah. If he's fat, he's got to eat. So if he doesn't eat during the day, it must be at night. So this is one of the traditional examples, although they usually say fat David Data, but you know, Bob is more <laughs> So, but I was thinking of. Um, you know, ex other examples of affirmative, affirming negatives that we kind of use in our daily life. For example, gluten-free bread. <laughs> gluten-free bread, we have lots of that around. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> so something is being negated that the bread contains gluten. So that's being negated, but something is being affirmed. It's bread. Okay, so I think that's an example of a affirming negative and uh, this sugar-free cough drops <laughs> non-violent communication yeah isn't that mm -hmm. so what's being negated is violence <laughs> what's being affirmed is communication so these are things that you know we use in our daily life and um we never knew that they were affirming negatives. <laughs> now we know. <laughs> yeah. And another one I thought of, if somebody says, there's no cheese in the refrigerator. Is that an affirming negative or a non-affirming negative? Eliminating all the things. No, it can't be eliminated because cheese is in there. It's non affirming. I think it's non affirming. Not good cheese. Yeah. But on the other hand, here in the Abbey, since we have multiple refrigerators, <laughs> if you don't find cheese in one refrigerator, you might think, oh, but maybe there's some in the walk in. <laughs> but if a house has only one refrigerator and there's no cheese in that refrigerator, then 
you can't keep cheese in the cupboard, so there must be no cheese in the house at all, and you have to go to the supermarket to buy some more. So, yeah, it kind of depends on context. <laughs> okay. But the real significance of negative phenomena is emptiness and selflessness. And those are very important objects that we need to understand, that we need to realize in order to get out of samsara, get to nirvana and enlightenment. And those are negative phenomena, non-affirming negatives. And so, so it is useful to know what kind of, you know, what kind of phenomena is a non-affirming negative, because that's something we're going to have to realize one of these days. And, and then the affirmative or positive phenomenon is realized by means of the mind apprehending it, not eliminating an object of negation. So to understand an affirmative phenomenon, it's not necessary to eliminate any object of negation. So examples, a cup, a cat, so nothing needs to be negated. Is that clear? Okay, let's see if we have time to look at the next one. Next is another way of dividing existence into single and different phenomena. So I think that probably means that whatever exists is either one or the other of these. It's either a single or a different. And single can also be translated as one. It's actually the Tibetan term cheek, which is the first number, number one. So there's different ways it's translated single or one or distinct. Um, so these are things that are, um, that are not diverse. <laughs> For example, a cup. Okay, or a cat, or a table, or a body. Okay, so it's just one single thing. And it mentions two types, false singles and true singles. And false singles are just all permanent phenomena. And the reason they're called false singles is because permanent phenomena are false. They're falsities. They, um, they don't exist the way they appear to conception. So some examples of false singles would be space, true cessation, emptiness, all mental images. And then true singles would be uh, impermanent phenomena that are just single, one. So cat, cup, table, body, car, computer, book, and so on. And then the other type of phenomena is different phenomena. And these are um, those that are diverse. For example, the pair, a cup and a cat. So this came up in the debate, right? The debate um, topic. So for most of you, this is probably just review. And if you, this is the first time you're hearing this, it usually takes a while. <laughs> To hear these things again and again to make sense of them. So Geshe Zopa in his book says that uh, the, the different are what appear 
different to a conceptual consciousness. So a conceptual consciousness can see that a cup and a cat are different. And so those are different. But he said that even two words for the same thing are different. So, for example, he gave the example of dog and key, which is key is the Tibetan word for dog. So, you know, both of those words are referring to the same object, but just different languages. But still, dog and key are different because they are different in name. Um, so to be one or single, it has to be the same in both meaning and name. So it has to be the same object and the same name. So cat and cat. But cat and shimmy, shimmy is the Tibetan word for cat, <laughs> those are different because the name is different. And usually they just talk, usually just give examples of two things, but I was thinking it could be three things or four things or five things, right? 101 Dalmatians, <laughs> 12 links, five aggregates. So those are all different. So I think it's anything more than one, anything above one is different or multiple. And again, there's two types. Um, false difference, uh, any two permanent phenomena, like space and emptiness, and true difference, any two impermanent phenomena, tree and car. And they're just, just because permanent phenomena are false and impermanent phenomena are true. So one there's one reasoning uh, for realizing emptiness um, that's called freedom from one and many. Have you heard of that one? Freedom from one and many. So I think one and many is, is another way of saying single and different. So in that reasoning, for example, um, you get in touch with your eye the eye that seems to be existing inherently, independently from its own side and so on. And then you check, does this really exist? If it does exist, it has to be either one or different, one or many. And you examine those two possibilities. And if you do it right, you realize it's neither of those, and therefore it cannot exist. So that's, you know, it's useful to understand this um, way of dividing phenomena to be able to make use of that reason. I think that's the main reason used in the, in the Madhyamaka Svatantrika, Yogacara Madhyamaka Svatantrika, like Shantarekshita's text on, um, yeah, he wrote a commentary to the Middle Way, Ornament for the Middle Way, I think it's called. So in that text, he uses that reasoning. Um, yeah, so we'll, we'll stop there. There's, there's just one more line in the text under objects, and it says that past and future are both permanent 
present and thing are mutually inclusive. So um, this is, again, talking about the three times. The Vaibhashika, if you might remember, they have this thing about the three times being substantially established. Mm -hmm. So they give some kind of substantiality to the past, present, and future. But in this school, they say that the past and the future are permanent um, because they can't perform a function. So the past, like, I was thinking of an example um, um, from our Abbey life here. Uh, let's say, you know, tomorrow Venerable Sultan's going to cook, and let's say she plans to make a cake. <laughs> so today, there's a future cake. It's just in her head imagining she's going to make a cake. So it hasn't yet arisen. It hasn't yet come into existence. So it's the future cake. And that's a permanent phenomenon. It can't perform a function. We can't eat it. <laughs> and then tomorrow, she bakes the cake. And when it's all ready, comes out of the oven, then it's the present cake. And that's a functioning thing. That's an impermanent thing. That's something that can function. We can eat it and enjoy it. And then after it's already eaten, it becomes the, there's the past cake. Okay. So the past cake is also permanent, um, can't perform a function. Um, I mean, the way I think of it, I could be wrong, but it, you know, we can have it in our mind. We can think, oh, that cake that Venerable Sultan made today was so delicious. It's all gone. There's not even the crumbs left, but we can still think of it. We still have a mental image of it. So, I don't know, my understanding is that's the meaning of a past cake. It's just something known conceptually. And that's just a permanent phenomena. It, it, it's not a real thing. It's not an impermanent thing that can change and perform functions. But, yeah, I don't know how important it is, this topic of past and present and future. But it does seem that each school has different assertions and then when it gets to prasangika they have very unique assertions <laughs> different from everybody else okay so we didn't have time to get to the next topic the next topic is object possessors so this is going into the minds different kinds of minds and so on so the cake goes from permanent to impermanent in the present moment and then to permanent again in the past it's not that the cake does that um, because again, the, pa the, future, the future cake exists before the present cake, okay? And the future cake is a permanent phenomenon. So it can't change. It, it can't become anything. Uh, like I said, the way I understand it is it's just a conceptual thing. We just have it in our mind, imagining a future cake. It's not the same cake. No, it's not. It, it doesn't, the future cake doesn't become the cake. It's the flour and the water and the eggs and the butter that become the cake. The future cake, I think, is just something conceptual. That's how I understand it. I could be wrong. And then the cake is there and it's eaten, gone. And then the past cake arises after the present cake. And again, but the past cake doesn't come into existence from the present cake. It's a permanent phenomenon, so it can't be a result. So again, I think it's just a conceptual thing. I mean, I don't, that's as much as I can understand. I could be wrong, but they do talk about it in, in these um, 
philosophical schools. So there must be some reason for that, some significance of that. But I mean, we do in our daily life, we do deal with past objects and future objects. Um, you know, things that were there yesterday or things that we hope will be there tomorrow. So we do deal with the past and the future. Sometimes they say those are non-existence, like meditations that encourage focusing on the present moment. The past is completely gone. The future is not here. It doesn't exist. Just mm -hmm. focus on the present. That's the only thing that exists. Yeah. Maybe it can be helpful, actually. But there's also some benefit in thinking about the past. Thinking about the negative karma we created uh, so that we can purify it. So if we just stop thinking about our past negative karma, that may not purify it. And then the future, you know, one day I'm going to become a Buddha and I'm going to help sentient beings and having that as an object that we're working towards. I mean, not to be attached. It's not helpful to be attached, grasping at the past and the future. But they do have some value in our practice, in certain ways of our practice. Chita is so much is, is future of aspiration, hmm. the spontaneous bodhicitta. It's yeah. not an existence in the present, but it is a future worth hmm. going for. Yeah, like in the like in the teachings, Geshe Tapke is giving keeps bringing in again and again. You know that this other way of practicing, where you just don't think about anything, don't have any, don't. Um, have don't engage in any objects that is not a correct practice if you want to attain even liberation or enlightenment we do have to engage with objects but just in a skillful way in a wise way so to just cut off all thoughts of the past and all thoughts of the future and even thoughts about present objects is not a, a correct way of practicing according to um, these teachings anyway you realize that those thoughts are in the present about the past and about the future. It's still happening in the present. Mm. Aspiration is still in the present. It's not some in the future. Yeah, the aspiration is in the present, but you still need to have some conceptual idea about what it is you're aspiring for. We had no, we never heard about such a thing as enlightenment and the bodhisattva path and these bodhisattva practices that we could do, then we would not have energy to work towards those. But anyway, we should probably stop here because some people need to engage in you, you class. <laughs> huh? The